This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. Today, is Parliament broken and how might we fix it? I'll be speaking to Chris Bryant, the Labour MP and author of a new book, Code of Conduct, about that. But first, it's time for our economist panel on an all-new game, Hansard Hoedown. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, I'm joined by Patrick Kidd from The Times. Hello, Patrick. Hello. And Dorothy Byrne. Hello, Dorothy. Hello. Great to have you both. How are you? Dorothy, how are you? I'm very good indeed. It's a lovely sunny day here at Murray Edwards College, Cambridge. It's, it's and, very sunny here in um, London too for once. Sorry? It's very sunny here in London too for once, Dorothy. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, Patrick, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. Good, good. Still plugging away through August? Yeah, there's been an awful lot of rain, hasn't it? It really has. I um, mean, we had June was far too hot, and then it just rained. I wish we'd just have something bland in the middle. Also, I mean, we won't, we won't talk about cricket uh, for longer than we need to. But it's outrageous that there's no there's now no Test cricket this this month. No, the indeed, scheduling was very strange, and no county championship until September either. So we have this um, uh, snack rounders. The, the hundred is <laughs> outrageous, outrageous. Right, uh, women's golf, women's You've golf, got women's golf, and and the women's World Cup football as well. Yeah, the Women's World Cup, England do very well, of course. Uh, lots to look forward to, even if uh, we've got no Ben Stokes. Uh, right, let's uh, let's talk about a subject close to, to my heart, uh, political books. Nicola Sturgeon is writing a deeply personal and revealing memoir, charting her life from a shy child to the longest ever serving Scottish First Minister. Last year, I spoke to literary agent Martin Redfern, who told me political books should be funny and show the politicians' essential humanity. I was just rereading the uh, Alan Clark entry when he's he's um, accused of being drunk at the dispatch box, and it you know, it is absolutely hilarious. It's a brilliant piece of political theatre, but also just a kind of humorous writing. It's an incredibly funny. Uh, it, it's just an incredibly funny passage, and I think you 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 want that degree of self-deprecation. I think right, you want to see the kind of human side of politician, which, um, I mean, let's face it, most of these diaries come out once they've left office. Mm. Or indeed, um, in some cases, when, they, when they've died. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 it's, 
and finally you get to kind of see the human side of, of the politician who's been given the kind of politician's answers for years and years when you know when questioned that was the literary agent martin redfern uh dorothy will you be reading nicola sturgeon's memoirs i certainly will um she says they're going to be deeply revealing and i think there'll be many people um, born in Scotland mm. or in Scotland who will want to read all about Nicola Sturgeon and perhaps she can give us the secrets of how she brought about such a decline in the health and education in Scotland but I noticed she hasn't yet got a title and I would like her to help her with that maybe the decline and fall of Nicola Sturgeon that would be a good one Yeah, decline and fall particularly given uh, what's befallen Nicola Sturgeon uh, in recent weeks. Uh, Patrick, hearing Martin Redfern, who's sold and edited a lot of these books, I, I, I know, uh, he actually edited Martin, uh, Alex Salmon's uh, memoir. Um, deeply personal and revealing, you know, should be funny and show a politician's humanity. You know, you were a sketch writer for some years, saw all these politicians up close. Are those qualities you necessarily associate with Nicola Sturgeon in particular and Scots Nats in general? I'm not sure how self-examining she is, or self-critical. I mean, they are at their best when they reveal some humanity. I suspect, looking at the blurb, there's going to be lots of talking up the poor me and my, my working-class shy background in Ayrshire, and now look where I got to. Um, I, I, I can't associate Sturgeon with any great personal re- revelations. So I'm not sure how much I'm anticipating it. She needs to be honest for it, for it to sell, I think, and, and give some good good gossip. Um, but of course, it's, it's just one of many coming out. We've got the Nadine Doris uh, novel, sorry, um, uh, non-fiction coming out in the September. The political assassination of Boris Johnson. Yes, and then, yeah. then there's Boris Johnson's own memoirs. Mm. So, um, but you know, often, I mentioned Chris Mullin earlier, often it's the people you don't think of who produce the best books. You know, not the biggest names can be the best writers. Yes, indeed, indeed. Alan Clark, too, not a massive name at yeah. the time. Obviously, he was a historian as well. But, you know, not people at the very, very top rank of politics. Chip Channon, another one who was never, you know, of cabinet rank. Obviously, he was a socialite as well. Well, it's his frustration that makes his... Exactly, diversity. exactly. Um, what, this is good news, however, for the uh, Scottish Parliament's library, because did you see the story we had last week uh, from a Freedom of Information request about how much money has been spent on gizmos left, right and centre, including black pudding was interesting. And six copies of a book of the collected speeches of Nicola Sturgeon had been purchased for the library. So presumably a few hundred copies of this have already been ordered. One for each MSP. <laughs> um, Dorothy, do you, do you associate, do you think, you know, Patrick was saying Nicola Sturgeon will need to be honest, frank, self-critical. Are those qualities you associate with her? I don't associate those with Nicola Sturgeon. Um, but I, I, I do love some of these things and their expenses. The fact they bought 22 copies of How to Run a Government, but I didn't see any sign that any use was made of those. (laughs) And the nail polish they bought. I mean, there's a lot that's very funny about Nicola Sturgeon, but not that she intended. No, exactly. Exactly. I'm looking forward to her doing her book tour in the motorhome. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, once it's uh, once it's released, uh, once it's released from. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, and obviously, it's very strange that this is all coming out against the backdrop, Dorothy, of the investigation into the SNP. It seems a curious time to announce that you're you've just been uh, you've just sold a book. Well, I mean, she's been interviewed by the police, so maybe that's where she got the idea of being 
deeply revealing. Who knows? Who knows? I think there's a lot more to hear about Nicola Sturgeon's time in office. Indeed. Indeed. Well, look, it's been a very, you know, the SNP famed for message discipline, you know, very close-knit circle of people around Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Hammond for years, took that party from opposition to government, and then it all... So all very spectacularly collapsed, both the personal relationships and the p- political project over the past years. So if if she is candidate, it should be a very, very revealing read. But, you know, let's see whether she is. Uh, let's move on to another big story this morning, NHS figures. Uh, this morning it's been revealed that the number of people in England waiting to start routine hospital treatment has risen to a new record high. Uh, we're also hearing people today requiring routine treatment uh, can avoid that backlog if they are willing to travel. That's as the NHS uh, has started a matchmaking service to pair patients stuck on waiting lists with any hospital with a free appointment. A uh, bit of a sort of swing and a miss for Rishi Sunak, this one, Patrick, because one of his five pledges is getting waiting lists down and they've risen to a record high. Seven and a half million, mm. which is enormous. I mean, it sounds enormous to me. I don't know how you deal with that backlog. It's well, one of the things that is coming out from Amanda Pritchard, uh, chief executive of NHS England, is that you will now not, if if you'd like to, not have to go to your local hospital. If it turns out that in Manchester and you live in London or whatever, you can get the treatment, then you, you will be able to, and and there will be an app that will do pairing and look at gaps. I mean, we have to bear in mind. England isn't that large a country. Mm. And despite how long it sometimes seems to take to travel from one to the other by train or whatever, you, by, by ambulance you could go, go and get your, your, your surgery at the other end of the country without too much difficulty. I think this is a good use of resources. NHS, of course, the N is national. There's, I don't really see why we should have to be focused on not giving people treatment just because there's no space locally. Would you be willing to travel for an operation, Dorothy, or should people have access to everything they need in their local hospital? You know, we want to get waiting lists down in any way we can, but this is really tinkering at the edges, isn't it? And anybody who has ever been in hospital or looked after anyone in hospital knows that they're having an operation because they're really sick. So do they feel like getting on a train for four hours? And then afterwards, uh, they need aftercare um, at the hospital that they attended Uh, quite a high percentage of people end up going back into the hospital after procedures. So I, I, I'm, you know, we have to be for anything. I don't think it's practical for people who are not very well off, who can't afford to go and stay in hotels nearby. Uh, But I think what we need is a proper root and branch examination of why the NHS isn't working. Uh, do you agree, Patrick? Well, I mean, there is talk in this piece here that Eleanor Hayward's written that uh, local funding would allow for the provision of hotels and, and, and taxes. I mean, could is probably doing a lot of heavy lifting there. When you see the word could in news copy, yeah. it always, it's, you know, there's a, there, there are shades of, uh, shades of uh, you know, heavy lifting. Optimism. Yeah, exactly. Look, I mean, it should be better, of course, but I've never believed in, in the belief that it has to be equally good for everyone or everyone should get the same bad treatment. If you can get better treatment, who wouldn't want to get treated sooner? And we often see stories about people taking their children off to Croatia to have a surgery because they can't get it in this country. Uh, there's a, there was one the other day. I just... Yes, it is tinkering. Of course it's tinkering. But um, any bit of tinkering that makes life better, I'm, I'm sure if my parents needed surgery, I would drive them to wherever to get it. I'd 
I did like the line, though, in the inadvertent joke in our piece, saying that um, patients needing hip replacements will be able to skip their local queue. I would have thought <laughs> skipping is the last thing you It's beyond you need the, a hip replacement. With a hip replacement. They might need another. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio, on the free Times Radio app, and on your smart speaker, this is Times Radio. Yes, Patrick Maguire, informatually here on Times Radio. We're just about to play Hansard Hoedown, but before that, I want to ask our columnist... A very sensitive question, and it's one the Times is asking today. Should your employer pay for your lunch? I hesitate to ask this as a lobby journalist. Uh, but Dorothy, should employers pay for their staff's lunch? Absolutely, they should. And at Murray Edwards College, we do. Uh, 26% of people in this country are obese. Another 40% are overweight. So two-thirds of the population don't eat right. And this is a great opportunity for employers who care about their employees to help them. So we provide a range of healthy meals. It means everybody eats together. It should mean that people don't eat at their desk. If I see somebody taking their food away, I say, do you know that people who take their food away are more overweight than other people? This is a really important and excellent thing that employers can do for employees, and it actually doesn't cost that much. Patrick? <laughs> I completely disagree, I'm afraid. Really? Um, there was a story the other day that um, you don't need to do 10,000 steps, you need to do 2,976 or something. And I was discussing this with our, our um, leader writer, um, and I looked at my app, because I, I measured this, and I worked out that going down to the pub each day is 1,500 steps. <laughs> so my lunchtime pop into the pub... Is it trip. really 1,500 steps to the old king's head from here? Well, maybe, and going to the bar backwards oh, and forwards, course, I suppose, yeah. as well. Which, which, you know, is... You know, several miles in your case. Yeah, I mean, this is a Times 2 piece in which they've had conflicting people giving different views. These are always interesting, but an HR person said it's the opportunity for colleagues to have a healthy lunch um, <laughs> and to spend time with colleagues, which I also, I'd rather not be forced to. What I did like, though, is that she said it's not in the it's not in the canteen. It's paying them to go to local businesses, and I like the idea of companies subsidising local businesses and helping lunch them. Lunch and vouchers back in the day. Bring right? back lunch and vouchers. I I, th- I think people should have free will over their lunch hour. Free will over their lunch hour. Well, you're not. <laughs> neither of you have any free will to avoid this, uh, no matter how excruciating you may find it. It's time to debut a new quiz on this uh, on this show. Yes, here's a game we're calling Hansard Hoedown. As you can see, we've uh, put a lot of thought into this concept. We're going to ask you both to guess the number of times a word has been said in the Commons or Lords. Whoever's closest to it gets the point. <laughs> so all I need from you is a number. Uh, we're going to deb- we're going to try this out with you t- today, and we're hopefully going to subject innocent members of the public to it tomorrow. So let's get cracking. Your first word on Hansard Hoedown today is. Camembert. Camembert. Dorothy, how many times do you think Camembert has been said in the Commons and Lords? In this year? Ever. Oh, ever. Uh, 16. 16. 16. Any advance on 16? Do I just go higher or lower or do I have to give a number? Uh, Give a number. I mean, it's going to be higher, I think, surely during all the EU debates, Camembert must have come. I'll go for 73. 
73. So what's that? That is 28 away from <laughs> 45. Uh, you're closer, Patrick. You're closer by one oh. because Dorothy guessed. Uh, no, hang on. Yes, you are. You're close it's by one. It's a thrilling opener. You're closer by one. Dorothy, you're 29 away. Uh, Patrick, you're 28 away because Camembert has been said 45 <laughs> times in the Commons and Lords. Uh, last used by the Labour MP Peter Dowd, who said, I can't bear it anymore. It's been increasingly clear that the government's economic policy has more holes in it than a Swiss cheese. So there you go. Right, time for another one. Hippopotamus. Hippopotamus. How many times has hippopotamus been said? Patrick is last round's winner. You can have it. I oh, think this is going to be relatively low. Shall we go for... 21. 21. Dorothy, any advance on 21? 13. 13. Patrick, you win again. Hippopotamus has been said 63 times oh, gosh. in the Commons. Used five times in a single day on June the 1st, 2018, when discussing the bill prohibiting the trade of irony. Uh, I, ivory, <laughs> ivory, ivory, ivory. If only they could prohibit the trade in irony. Uh, this show would be a lot more difficult. Right, Funky. Adv- Funky, Advezi, our co-host, is one person who's used this in the comments, but how many times has it been said overall? Dorothy, Funky. Funky? Yes. Oh, um, 56. 56, Patrick. I'm going to go low, I reckon. Nine. Nine. Oh, Patrick, you're 21 away, Dorothy's 26 away, so you're on... It's 3-0. <laughs> this it's, is a thrilling game, though. It's 3-0. Ed Vasey, <laughs> in a debate on music education schools, called the schools minister Nick Gibb, Funky Gibb, in 2019. Oh. He said, All I say to the Funky Gibb that sits before us is, get on your feet, stand up for music and arts education. In his heart, I know he believes in it. And he can do that Funky Gibb dance today. It was first used in 1985. Michael Hesseltine was labelled very funky indeed. Uh, right. I know it's before the watershed, but let's try this one. Bonk. Bonk. How many times has the word bonk been used in Hansard, Dorothy? Twelve. Twelve, is that? Twelve? Yes. Twelve. Patrick? I mean, it must have been used about Boris quite a bit. Um, I think it's going to be low as well. Let's go for a close... Tw- 21. That's a point to Dorothy, I'm afraid. Hey. It's been used 14 times. 3-1 Patrick, but Dorothy claws a point back. It was apparently <laughs> first used by Robert Peel during a debate on Peel's bill for returning British currency to the gold standard. He wasn't referring to a French bank, was he? A bonk. <laughs> Dominic Grieve used it in combative terms in 1998, uh, saying he disagreed with the Labour MP on the principle of sovereignty. I could just walk across the floor and bonk him on the head, but I shall resist the temptation. Uh, and now, very quickly, very quickly, just the numbers. TARDIS, Dorothy. Eight. Eight, Patrick. Seventeen. Seventeen, Patrick, you're closer. It's 55. No. Uh, so, you win for one, I believe. Victory is mine. Thank you very much to both of you for playing along. I think we'll subject some listeners to that tomorrow. Thanks for playing Hansard Hoedown. Thanks for being such a great pair of columnists for our Columnist panel. That was Patrick Kidd and Dorothy Byrne with today's Columnist panel. And you also heard them play Hansard Hoedown. More of that tomorrow. Remember, you can read Patrick in The Times every day. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox and get yourself a digital subscription. Coming up, Chris Bryan on how to fix our broken parliament.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Is Parliament broken? And if so, how can we fix it? This year, like last year, and the year before that, and the year before that, has been dominated by tales of politicians getting up to no good. Well, the Labour MP for the Ronda and Chair of the Committees on Standards and Privileges, Sir Chris Bryant, wants to change that. In his new book, Code of Conduct, Why We Need to Fix Parliament and How to Do It, he provides an insider's account of what he calls the systemic failure in Parliament and sets out a plan for change. Sir Chris joins me now. Hello, Chris. Good morning, Patrick. We can ditch the surbit, I think. Now we've done enough of that. Ah, uh, well, okay, okay. You're like Keir Starmer. You don't like uh, you don't like the title. Well, I was really chuffed to be given it in the New Year's Honours list, but um, I, I think it's best to sit light by titles, not to enforce them. Okay, certainly, certainly, sir. Uh, I'm going to ask you now <laughs> to set out your manifesto to improve behaviour in Parliament going forward. But first, let's look back and see how we got here. Uh, Misconduct in Parliament isn't new, of course. Let's hear how we got here. I want to apologise on behalf of politicians, on behalf of all parties, for what has happened. Look, I understand entirely why the public hates this, right? The system is wrong. It needs to be changed. Well, the culture has changed over the years. What was might have been acceptable 15, 10 years ago is clearly not acceptable now. There is no place for bullying, for sexual harassment or abuse in any workplace, and that includes in this parliament. So, so Chris, we just heard... Um, range of politicians talking about uh, expenses, talking about sexual misconduct, harassment and bullying. You've been an MP since 2001. How would you describe the culture into which you arrived and how did it compare to your expectations of the parliament you expected to to serve? Well, I think everybody when they first arrive in Parliament, the first thing that strikes them is the building. And, of course, it is a confrontational one. The benches sit opposite each other. Um, I remember being really shocked by the first experience of Prime Minister's questions, all the argy-bargy there, because even if you've seen it on telly, 
you presume you'll be able to hear the person who's actually asking the questions. But if you're sitting in the chamber, often you can't hear a word that's going on. You have to lean into one of the little microphones, uh, speakers rather, that's in the seats um, just to be able to hear what's going on. So I think I was shocked by that. Um, the other thing that surprised, that didn't surprise me was that it felt a bit like, you know, um, an Oxford college or a, a grand country house. Um, but it, but what came with it was some were some expectations that um, you would brush a lot of things under the carpet. Um, so one of the things I detail in my book is uh, how uh, many years ago now, more than fifteen years ago, several um, senior uh, MPs uh, grabbed my backside during divisions in the division lobbies, and back in those days, all of that kind of stuff was swept under the carpet. Um, it's a very beautiful carpet, but it was swept under the carpet. That wouldn't be true today. I'm proud of the fact that um, in the last few years, we brought in the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme, first parliament in the world, which means that if you if you feel you've been bullied or sexually harassed, you can uh, go, you can make a complaint. It will be dealt with completely confidentially. And we've seen already in this parliament, which incidentally has seen this parliament since December 2019, has seen 22 MPs throw um suspended for a day or more for a range of different um uh reasons or have left parliament before a report into their misconduct was produced um so uh, now you know some people have left because of sexual harassment and bullying which back in when i first arrived in 2001 everybody just kind of grinned and bared it was parliament a difficult place to be a gay man in the early 2000s because obviously by that point homosexuality has been legal for uh, 34 years, but political culture hasn't really caught up. Well, it was only partially legalised in 1967. Um, and the age and of consent wasn't equalised until much later, of course. In, well, not until there was a Labour government in 1998, and, and then we had to push that through the House of Lords. But but there were lots of other things. Uh, you no, know, when I arrived in Parliament, it, it was still not easy to be a gay person in, in any part of life. I think the press were far more interested in gay MPs than anybody else. Um, I, I don't know why, uh, but it was true. And I remember on one occasion being told in a debate by a Conservative MP um, that he would give way to me in the debate, even though I was a notorious homosexual who would never have children of my own. Um, he said that in, in the chamber? In the chamber, yeah. It's one of the few occasions when the whole chamber is united behind me, I think. <laughs> um, but um, uh, look, uh, so yes, all those, a lot of those attitudes have, have changed. But if you look at... Um, some of the work that some of the trade unions who represent staff working in Parliament have produced, it's pretty clear that it's not changed anywhere near enough. There are still people who feel that they get bullied by their by their boss, by their MP boss, or by other um, staff in Parliament, um, or they feel that uh, other pe it's not a safe place um, for young men or for young women, that they get ogled, they get touched up inappropriately. And of course, most recently, we've had the case of Chris Pincher, who's appealing his the decision from the Standards Committee. So we'll see how that goes. But um, and that didn't even happen on the parliamentary estate. It happened in the Carlton Club. Um, so I, I think we still got further to go. One of the things I suggest in my book is, you know what we could do? We could say that if you get elected as an MP, you cannot employ any staff with um, taxpayers money until such time as you've undergone a full train, full training in 
uh, human resources and and employing people. Uh, and incidentally, you, you you should never be able to employ people without an open advert and without um, somebody else sitting in on the interviewing. Because often um, MPs just arrive with no training or no management experience. They need to set up an office immediately. You know, they're recommended people by other MPs, etc., etc. Yep. As you say, and it's a sort of often a recipe for complete disaster. Well, you might have been, you know, you might have been in a line of work before you came into Parliament, either where you'd never employed another person or where um, there was a massive personnel department which was going to resource you or you, you were in like a family business where you could pretty much, you know, write your own rules. And, and of course, when you're uh, employing staff in, in a public sector environment, as in Parliament, it is rather different and you have to learn different ways. So so that's one of the things I think we could do. Um, I incidentally, some of the worst behaviour I've ever seen in Parliament of a variety of different kinds has been in the division lobbies. Uh, one of the simple things I think we could do is we could just have cameras in the division lobbies. We have cameras in the chamber. We have che- uh, cameras elsewhere in Parliament. I don't see why we can't have them in the division lobby. Because people at home might not realise that every time you need to vote, and this is a large part of why some, sometimes MPs end up absolutely tanked uh, of an evening, is because every time you have to troop through the division lobbies in person to vote on this amendment or that, you know, you're up against, you know, you're rubbing up against each other in the division lobbies. There's hundreds of you walking through at the same time. You know, there's been reports of physical altercations, fights, uh, sexual assaults in the division lobbies, uh, and there is no way to, there's no way to prove what happened or did not. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, worst instances I remember was rather different. It was, I think, in 2011, maybe 2012, uh, it was the coalition uh, parliament, coalition government, uh, we were voting very late on a finance bill, like at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. Um, lots of people had been drinking quite a lot in the bars, just waiting for the for the votes. One um, MP tried to talk to me about Europe um, and kept on falling off his stool. Um, and another, a female MP later was um, uh, uh, the sergeant at arms, who was then a woman, tried to give her a hand um, into the division lobby. Uh, whereupon the the member was sick all over the sergeant at arms. Now, uh, a lot of that wow. actually has changed in the in the intervening ten years. We don't sit as late. Um, I much prefer it. I'm glad that we introduced some family, more family friendly hours quite a long time ago. I prefer us to go back to um, family hours that are rather more like most most ordinary families in the country. Um, but um, and, and incidentally, I know some people say, "Well, why on earth do you have alcohol at all in Parliament?" I think the danger of just taking alcohol out of Parliament is that people would just go off-site. And classic instance of this, as I just referred to, is is Chris Pincher. Um, you know, all of that took part in the Carlton Club, which is not part of Parliament at all. And if we're talking about the breakdown of trust in politics or a system where rules aren't abided to or the letter of the rules and the spirit of the rules don't really match up or rules are treated as sort of optional or, you know, rules to be got around. The expenses scandal was a big moment in terms of the way Britain relates to its parliamentarians. Some would say it confirmed people's worst suspicions of politicians. It's become a sort of, you know, yardstick and a a sort of big moment in folk memory. Would you agree with that analysis? Yes, I remember very early on uh, when I was very first elected, 2001, there was a 
a row about MPs' pay. And back in those days, MPs set their own pay. We voted on our own pay. It seems extraordinary now, and I'm, I, I refused to do so. Um, but um, because um, the government wasn't allowing a, a significant increase in MPs' pay, um, somebody tabled an amendment to double the allowances for MPs. I don't mean the, the rock costs of running their office, the, the allowances for living in London. And um, I, I was one of the very few MPs who voted against that. But the truth is we then set up a system which was bound to fail and bound to bring the whole thing into disrepute. And, you know, I, along with lots of other people, you know, we did everything according to the rules, but the rules were wrong and we should have been much stricter with ourselves. So, yes, of course, all of that. And brought it into disrepute. And incidentally, I should say that although I've written this book, Code of Conduct, and tried to suggest ways in which we need to change, um, I'm not saying that I'm a saint by any means. Mm. And, and indeed, I, some, I would sometimes argue that um, if, you tr if you want MPs to be, be saints, uh, more saintly than anybody else, uh, that is a flawed enterprise. Much better for us to try to be good enough um, and that's why I've tried to suggest ways in which we, we can change things. But, but you know, that I think there's one other problem in all of this, which is that um, in our system, unlike the United States of America or, or lots of other countries, we have very few checks and balances um, when it comes to the power exercised by government. So once you become part prime minister in our system, it's winner takes it all in the words of ABBA. You, you get to, to decide when Parliament sits, how long it sits for, when it goes on holiday, what it debates every single day of the week, how long it gets to debate an individual subject, how long you get, how many amendments can be tabled, what amendments can be considered for a vote, uh, every single penny of expenditure. And, and, that, and of course, you can add as many members uh, to the House of Lords to rejig the parliamentary arithmetic as you want. And that concentration of power... I think is really dangerous. You know, power, a bit like muck and money, is best spread around. So some of the suggestions I have in the book are about um, how we could, uh, 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 to use a Boris Johnson phrase, um, uh, 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 take back control on behalf of Parliament from the government. It's interesting. It's, it is interesting, isn't it, that centralisation of power you refer to. And perhaps that was very vividly illustrated by Boris Johnson's relationship to the parliamentary standards regime. We've looked at the past in Westminster and how we've got here. Let's look at the present now. I indeed share the widespread concern about some of the stuff that we're reading at the moment. They're marvellous companies. I've never mentioned them in a speech. I've never asked a question. I've never gone to an urgent question. I've never gone to Westminster Hall. Pincher by name. Pincher by nature. When all these questions started coming to light about uh, Nadim Zahawi, you know, I asked the independent advisor to get to the bottom of it. When I worked for him, Dominic Raab was not aware of the impact of his behaviour on the people working for him. And a couple of months ago, Dan uh, Matt Chorley asked Daniel Greenberg, the Commissioner for Standards, on this programme uh, whether he agrees that parliamentary standards are at their worst level ever. I think one of the things that has happened in recent years is that expectations have risen, particularly in relation to how a modern workplace functions. I think what matters here is that there are sanctions available to the House by which it can self-regulate in an effective way. And there are those sanctions. Daniel Greenberg striking a very similar note to you, Chris Bryan, in saying that actually expectations 
are much higher and our idea of what's acceptable for our public representatives has changed quite dramatically over the past 20 or so years. Actually, I think he was making a slightly different point, um, which is the point that I would make, and, 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 and I'll go into this in, <laughs> at some length in the book, um, is, which is that actually expectations about any workplace have changed. You know, the things that you would have said or done, you know, a, an older man slapping a woman on the bottom or whatever, which would have been maybe acceptable, not good, but might have been accepted or, or ignored 20, 25 years ago. They're not acceptable in any other workplace. So why on earth should they be acceptable in Parliament? And I think we've been a bit out of step for some time in Parliament. Um, in particular, I would argue about bullying. Um, you know, things that, as I say, in any other line of work, you would be out on your ear pretty sharpish. Um, I think we've sort of tolerated in Parliament, and it's only now that we're beginning to get on top of that. It's, it is interesting. Would you agree that this is the worst Parliament ever? Well, just statistically, 22 MPs suspended out of 650 in uh, less than four years. That is a pretty bad record. Now, you could argue that that's because we are taking these issues seriously now, which we didn't used to in the past. But but also, you know, I, people's ex, voters' expectations, not expectations, voters' mistrust in Parliament and in and MPs is now at an all-time record as well. So, you know, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it, 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 roughly 40, 45% of people used to think that MPs were all wasters and crooks and, and liars and all the rest of it. Um, at the at the peak in the last few months, it's been at 75, 80%. And that's worrying because a young lad came up to me in Ustrid uh, in the Rontha in the gym the other day. And he said to me, well, it was the day that the Boris Johnson report as to whether he'd lied to Parliament came out. And the lad said to me, look, if Boris Johnson gets away with lying like this, there's no point in voting, is there? And my anxiety is um, twofold. First of all, that, um, you know, that phrase, one, bad apple mm. it doesn't mean we've just got one bad apple so we don't need to worry about it it means one bad apple spoils the barrel um and i think we've normalized lying um and that is problematic so for instance you, you regularly have ministers now who are told categorically by the uk statistics authority that what they are saying is untrue and they keep on repeating it um, I think we should have a rule which says that if the UK Statistics Authority tells you to correct the record and you refuse to do it within 28 days or something, that is a breach of the Code of Conduct in the House of Commons and you're out on your ear. Um, that's my one concern, that we've, we've normalised um, uh, these problems. But the other side is, if we continue to have complete and utter distrust in all MPs, um, then there's a danger that democracy withers on the vine. And we'll talk about your solutions, the solutions you propose to the book in a little bit more detail in just a moment, Chris. But since you mention lying, often people who take an interest in politics are confused, if not infuriated by the fact that MPs cannot say to another MP in the chamber, that is a lie. And they are often kicked out of the chamber for doing so. Yeah. Given that you say lying is now perhaps endemic in our political discourse, do you think that rule should be changed? Well, it is an irony, isn't it, that Dawn Butler and Ian Blackford, who are two of the people who were suspended for, effectively suspended for a day, sent out of the chamber for calling Boris Johnson a liar, um, are in that list. Um, and, and now they've been joined by Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson, it has been decided by uh, a very significant majority in the House of Commons, did lie to Parliament repeatedly and deliberately. 
Um, uh, yes, I, I think that rule needs revision. I, I, am, I fully understand why. You, you don't want everybody calling everybody a liar every you know, turn. Jacob Rees-Mogg regularly re- um, tells me um, when we do interviews together, just because you disagree with me, Chris, doesn't mean that I'm necessarily lying. And I point out with him to him that just because you say you're not lying doesn't necessarily mean you're not lying. Um, and look, let's, let's be clear. Sometimes we make mistakes. I, I've known, I've, I've sometimes said million when I meant billion. Um, if you're a minister in the House of Commons, there's a formal process which we introduced in 2007 for correcting the record. And it's a really important thing because it doesn't just mean that you state the correct thing now. It also means that in the formal record of Hansard in, uh, online and, and in the published documents, it has the correction. That isn't available at the moment to backbench MPs. I've had to correct the record a couple of times, but there's no formal process for us to do it. And I think that should be available to all MPs. And we and, and ministers do it hundreds of times every year. Uh, and that's fine. It's when they refuse to do it that then I think it's become a deliberate lie. We've talked about how we got here and just how... Uh, just how badly our parliament is doing in terms of standards. Now let's talk about the future and what the solutions might be. After the fallout from the Boris Johnson affair and the Liz Trust Premiership, Rishi Sunak seems to be focused, or at least is saying he's focused, on one thing in particular. Mr Speaker, the message that I clearly want to send is that integrity in public life matters. I will take whatever steps are necessary to restore the integrity back into politics. Integrity is really important. This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Uh, Do you agree, Chris Bryant? Look, Patrick, my book is not a partisan one. Uh, It applies equally to Labour and to Conservative um, because I care about democracy. but I have to confess that when I hear Rishi Sunak bang on about integrity, I want to say, how come you never turned up for the vote on whether Owen Paterson, who was found guilty of um, paid lobbying on behalf of his clients uh, around Parliament? Uh, why didn't you turn up for that vote? Why didn't you turn up for the vote on where, whether Boris Johnson had lied to Parliament? Why did you have absolutely nothing to say about the Conservative MPs who'd been trying to undermine the work of the committee um, appointed by the whole House of Commons? Um, and, um, and, and incidentally, you've got a ministerial code which says that all major announcements of new policies should be announced first to the House of Commons. Yet you decided when you were introducing major new policy for the NHS with the workforce uh, report that you're producing, you weren't, you weren't going to do that in Parliament. You were going to do it in Downing Street on a Friday afternoon. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm, I, I don't buy, uh, I, I don't think we've changed. And I think one of the problems is that Boris Johnson did normalise a lot of the problems that we've got. But look, I think that there, there are two categories, if I might, Patrick, of, of issues I think that we need to address. One is the systemic problems that we've got. So, for instance, why on earth during COVID, I understand why we had to do emergency legislation and all the rest of it, but why on earth did so many pieces of legislation come into effect before they were even published? Let's hold that in our mind. Mm. They came into force before they were even published. That's because we have a system whereby in the House of Commons, we don't do scrutiny of government legislation properly. And that's because the government's in charge of the timetable. They do it better in the House of Lords. So one of the simple things I think we should do is we should say, I'm sorry, the government's no longer in. We we should take back control for the House of Commons. Government's not in charge of the timetable. We're going to have a committee elected by the whole House. Um, which will decide what we do on Monday, what we do on Tuesday, how lo- whether we're going to give two hours to a particular piece of legislation or two days. 
Um, that's one category, the systemic stuff. And I think that that would tackle the problem of the, what I would call the very dodgy contracts um, that have been given out to cronies, the dodgy um, way that uh, some t the town's funders operated, d these discretionary funds where government ministers sign off money for individual constituencies. But then there's a completely different cat set of things, which is how you deal with individual behaviour of MPs. So two things I think we could do fairly easily. One that's brought, it's been much in the news in recent days, is about what do you do about an MP who never turns up? Doesn't turn up to vote, doesn't turn up to take part in debates, um, still takes um, the MP's salary, still takes the office costs, still employs people with the taxpayer's money, doesn't run constituency surgeries um, or anything like that. What do you do? I think we should have exactly the same rule as they have in local councils, which is that if you haven't turned up for six months, you can only keep on, you can only stay on the council if the council passes a motion to grant you permission to stay on. Um, uh, that should apply, I think, to Nadine Doris, for instance. And in fact, oddly enough, we used to have a rule back in 1801. I've done my research here. Back in 1801, we had a rule that you couldn't just disappear off into the country and not come to Parliament without um, uh, the permission of Parliament. Um, and the second thing we should do is we should have exactly the same rules um, for ministers on declaring interests as we do for backbench MPs. At the moment, there's an exemption, would you believe, for ministers. That's why if two MPs, one a backbench minister, uh, MP and one a minister, go to the same event, let's say, I don't know, a bond premiere. Uh, the cost... backbenchers will have to declare the cost, but we don't necessarily see the minister do the same. Is that correct? Exactly so. The backbencher has to do it within 28 days, the minister, and with all the details, the exact cost, but the minister goes in their ministerial capacity, if, uh, so they say, and uh, it, it appears many months later without even the financial details. So the classic instance of this was um, Priti Patel going to a Bond premiere. And when I asked the government minister why that wasn't in the House of Commons register, they said it's because she went in a ministerial capacity. Why is that in a ministerial capacity? He said, this was Michael Ellis, I joke not. He said, well, Bond exercises um, executive functions. I wanted to point out, a, that Bond is a fictional character. And secondly, that Bond works for MI6, not MI5. And MI6 <laughs> is foreign office, not home office. But anyway, the point is, we should have exactly the same rules for ministers as for backbench MPs. Do you think, Chris Bryant, just to conclude, uh, and if anyone wants to read your full list of solutions, they can, of course, uh, buy Code of Conduct, um, that you know, obviously doing the right thing in politics when power comes into it is is hard. It requires governments to give up power. It requires leaders to give up power. And as you say, this isn't just a, certainly not just a conservative issue. Obviously, the expenses scandal happened under a, under a Labour government. Labour's dis disciplinary processes were a total, most people would say, were a total mess under Jeremy Corbyn and became very politicised. You've you, written very well about that. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And of course, there's, an, there's, another, there's another book on that issue you can buy called Left Out uh, if you're uh, in Waterstones <laughs> buying Chris Bryant's. But... Do you think, do you have faith that if our political culture has been degraded, that political leaders of any stripe are prepared to take the very painful steps and there are no votes in parliamentary, obviously there are votes in parliamentary culture, but there are no votes in internal parliamentary reforms. Is any government ever going to make this a priority regardless of their party allegiance? Well, look, first of all, some things might be sorted before the next general election. I'm still pushing for the government to 
bring in some of the changes that I'm arguing for. Um, I suspect they won't because uh, it just doesn't feel like this is something that motivates um, Rishi Sunak and others. Um, but more importantly, um, most voters haven't written to me about this and they complain. If I, if I sit in the, in the Riola in Port on a Friday night, um, people will come up to me and moan about MPs being liars and all the rest of it. Um, but we need to do better because, look, I was partly brought up in Spain under Franco, which is a dictatorship. I lived in Argentina for a while when I was training to be a priest, and that had just come out of dictatorship. Friends of mine have been tortured. I, I passionately believe in parliamentary democracy. It is the best way of running a country, but only if it functions properly. And the danger is that we lose trust. Um, so what I want is um, I don't care which party does it. Obviously, I'm Labour. I want there to be a Labour government. I hope there will be a Labour government. It feels to me as if this government has run out of steam and, and this parliament, frankly, has passed its sell-by date. Um, but I want whatever government to introduce a great reform act, which changes so many elements of the way we do our business in parliament um, and, re and restores a fully functioning democracy. I'm hopeful that that will actually happen in the next two or three years. That was Chris Bryant, the Labour MP and author of a new book, Code of Conduct. He was also interviewed by The Times earlier this week. Head to thetimes.co.uk and check that one out too. That's all we got time for today. I'll be back tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.